Okay, we're in the book of James. It's way at the end of the, our New Testament. Does anybody have a page number for James chapter 4? You can just yell, yell it out if you get there. What, what was it? 979? Good. So yeah, we're, we're already to chapter 4, and, and we're not, by now starting to see that James is addressing a pretty big issue, issue in this letter, and he's, he's hitting it head on. It's, it's this idea that we can have faith devoid of a walk, or that, that faith is divorced from my life. And for uh, a Hebrew like James, like this is just inconceivable, uh, because to, to a Hebrew, uh, faith is a walk that begins with Abraham when God said to him, uh, get up and walk. And Abraham left everything, not knowing even where he's going, and he walked a thousand miles. And that whole walk of faith was just that. That's faith. Faith is, is your walk. Uh, and, and so this idea now, though, is creeping in, especially with Greeks Romans coming in because the Greek understanding of faith is very different than the Hebraic understanding of faith. Uh, faith starts with what I know. It's having uh, the right answers, the right doctrine, and almost to the point where my life doesn't matter, my walk doesn't matter. And yet, what James is telling us, which is very Hebraic, if you want to know what I believe, just look at my life. So today, James is going to uh, burrow, though, deep. He's going to go past our behavior, the things that people can see, and he's going to dig. He's going to dig into our hearts, to the unseen, into our desires, our appetites, our wants, our lusts. So get ready. Um, it's, uh, he's going to hit hard today. James chapter 4, let's stand for the reading of God's word to us through his servant James. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. And I can often say, too, for the wrong things. So that you may then spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterers, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. And he gives us more grace. That, that is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows his grace, his favor to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, draw near to him and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, 
be miserable. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to, gro- to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is God's word. When's the last time you wept, wailed, mourned over your sin? That's my question from this text. James's te- question that he begins with is what causes fights, uh, what causes all the conflict, the division, the quarreling among you. (laughs) Any fighting these days? Any quarrels, conflicts? It's everywhere. It's in every institution, politics, the marketplace, the academy, It's in every neighborhood. It's practically in every family. Division, fighting, conflict, quarrels. Now remember, James, though, is not asking this question of the world out there. James is addressing Christians. He's saying, why do you fight? Why do you quarrel? Why is there so much conflict among you? And so what James is, is shining the spotlight on to this question is, is, is the fruit, and it's bad fruit. Now, one of the things that James then could just say is he could just say, stop it. Stop the fighting. Stop the quarreling. Stop behaving this way. Get rid of that bad fruit and replace it with good fruit, but that's not what James does. James instead goes to the roots of the fruit the part of the tree that people can't see to their actual hearts because that is the source of their problem. Their problem is far deeper than bad behavior. Our wants and our desires and our appetites, our cravings, all flow from our heart. And that's where James is going. They have a heart problem. Now here's the deal. You can look at my life and, and, and you can see my behavior and, and you can make judgments on that whether it's, it's good or bad and I can do the same with you. I can look at your life and I can look at your behavior and make my own assessments on, on, on whether it's good or bad. Uh, but when it comes to a person's desires and, and a person's wants, their cravings, these are, these are harder to detect. I mean, you... you, you you can't even look at me right now and, and know what I want. Um, I, I can't look at you and, and, and know what you want and, and, and what, what the cravings are and appetites. Uh, and, and sometimes I think we can't even look at our own heart and, 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 and know our hearts and, and its cravings and its lusts and its wants. Uh, Jeremiah 17 says this about the human heart. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? 
And a lot of times we can't even understand our, our own hearts, but we need to understand our hearts because the Bible also says, for out of the heart, out of the heart flow the wellsprings of life from our roots. Our roots will determine the fruit. And so when it, when it comes to our, our desires, um, our appetites, our cravings, I think we all know how potent they are. I mean, they have the potency to control and influence the course of a person's life. Uh, they have the potency to dictate uh, who or what we are becoming. Uh, they have the potency to rob, destroy, and diminish a life. This is why James goes there in verses one to two. And he looks at all the things on the surface, all the fruit. Why do you fight? Why do you quarrel? Why do you murder? Why do you covet? And he could keep going. He could say, why do you slander? Why do you steal? Why do you cheat? Why do you take advantage of people? Why do you use people, hurt people, abuse people? See, instead of addressing just the sin, James is going to expose the sin underneath the sin, which is our passions and our desires that come from the heart. Now, the word in the original language uh, for passions in, in verse one, uh, it, it's the Greek word hadon. And hadon is, is, is the word from which we get hedonism. Uh, hedonism is the craving, it's the longing for pleasure, but it's not just any pleasure because not all pleasure in and of itself is wrong. The Bible says about God that at God's right hand, there are pleasures evermore. But what the Greeks did, uh, in terms of how they made sense of reality, uh, they, they believed that the world basically consisted of two realities, that there was first a material physical reality that we can see, but then there was also a non-material spiritual reality that is unseen. So hedon to them, or hedonism, it's, 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 it's in that reality of the material in, in the flesh. It's those fleshly cravings for the material and the, and the physical material aspects of our world. Uh, namely, I think you could say money, sex, and power things that promise pleasure and worldly comfort. I mean, every one of us in this room right now understands this craving, this passion, this passion and desire, this want for, for physical pleasure, for material comfort. Uh, that's why words that just literally dominate uh, who we are as a culture today, words like materialism or eroticism or consumerism. Our world is driven by these things. People's lives are controlled by such appetites and wants and cravings. I remember when our former executive pastor, Randy Heckman, in a day uh, left Crossroads uh, to run for the U.S. Senate uh, he, he eventually dropped out, and I asked him why, because I knew his heart was really set on that, and he said, you have no idea how much Washington, D.C., he said, every aspect of it is controlled by money and sex. 
We're a nation right now that's just drunk. We're literally drunk on pleasure. We're addicts. I mean, you can start with, with, with sexual pleasure. Uh, sex now dominates so much of our world. Sex in the marketplace, sex on campus, sex in politics, sex in entertainment, sex in sports, sex on our screens. And sex, like drugs, starts with a gateway drug, but it doesn't stay there. It just keeps getting darker and darker and more and more perverse. This God-shaped, God-ordained gift for a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage is now being wielded by the enemy as an instrument of death. And it's destroying us. It's spelling death to families, marriages. It's spelling death to godly womanhood and manhood. It's death to unwanted babies. It's death to almost everything good in our lives. We're literally watching our nation rot because of this untamed appetite. Hadon. And I haven't talked about yet the hedon of money, which has also in, infected every area of our life. I mean, I think you could argue right now that never has a culture in the history of the world had more money and the fruits of money than our culture today. I mean, all the toys, all the creaturely comforts that we have at our fingertips right now, and yet people have never craved money more, hoarded money more, and had their lives so defined by this shallow thing called money. And we're watching our nation right before our eyes uh, being destroyed by money and sex, and it's not just our politic and politicians, but greed is destroyed destroying uh, our institutions. It's destroying sports from golf to college football. We're watching it. It's destroying pleasure itself. That's Hedon that James is um, highlighting. In verse two, James uses another word that is synonymous with Hedon. It's the Greek word epithemia. And here he says, you desire, that's that word epithemia, but you do not have. Now, if you've been around Crossroads for some time, uh, you know that we talk about this word a lot. And the reason we talk about this word a lot is because every New Testament writer talks about this word a lot. In fact, the New Testament writers use this word epithemia as a catch-all word to define what's most wrong with our hearts. That's why... I don't know if you guys got the handout in the second service, but I have some handouts uh, at the corner of the stage there. I have some handouts here. Uh, I wanted to just uh, show you uh, all the uses of this word in the New Testament because I don't want you to just be a people that are uh, listening to sermons on Sunday mornings, but you guys are students of God's word, and I want you to see what a big deal our New Testament writers make of this word. So yeah, Matt, pick it up. Anyone, come right now and, and, and pick up um, one of those handouts. I just want to say, though, the handout only includes the places epithemia is used as a noun. It doesn't include all the places where uh, this word is used as a verb. For instance, Jesus in Matthew 5 uses it as a verb. 
He says, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, that's that word epithemia. And that's how uh, James in our text today uses the word. He's using it not as a noun, but he's using it as a verb. He says, you desire, that's epithemia as a verb, but you do not have. And this, according to James, is the sin that's underneath the sin of division, fighting, quarreling, conflict. And if you read the New Testament authors, uh, they're going to say it's the sin underneath all sin. Epithemia. Now, this word in our New Testament is usually trans translated as lust or evil desire uh, because the word breaks down this way. Um, thumia is the Greek word for desire, but then it has the prefix epi added to it. Epi means uber or this over the top. So it's not just any desire, but it's these over the top desires that flow from our hearts. It's when our hearts say, I, I must have that. And that thing that our, that our heart in that moment is craving, it doesn't always have to necessarily be a bad or evil thing. Sometimes it can be a good thing. So the way I like to think about this, it's not simply my heart wanting bad things, it's my heart wanting things too badly. And see, the wanting of that thing, whatever it is, it's, it's more than just a simple desire or a simple wanting. It's this idolatrous wanting. It's when a normal desire becomes this inordinate desire, and that desire uh, then turns that object, whatever uh, the, 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 the object of that desire, it turns that object into an idol. That's why John Calvin, I think, says it. As well as anybody, he says, our hearts were literally made by God uh, to worship something as awesome as God. Our hearts were made for him. And he says, but when our hearts don't worship God, our hearts then become idol factories, turning anything into a God thing. Because if it's not God, we will make something our life because we were made to worship. If we don't worship God, we will worship something. And this is why uh, the first of the Ten Commandments is, it's not just the first in terms of order, but it's, it's the first in terms of importance. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, no idols, no graven images, uh, because all sin really does come back to idolatry. It comes back to what we worship, and whatever we worship, at the end of the day, it's going to convert us, that we're gonna become the idols in our life. But just stop and think right now about all the things, good things, bad things, that our hearts can quickly turn into an idol. I mean, there's the obvious ones of, of money and sex and pleasure, food, sport, a team, fandom, out of control today, a hobby, our screens, the latest toy, a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a career, but even a ministry. 
A reputation can become an idol. Your kids can become an idol. Your marriage can become an idol. I mean, our hearts can turn almost anything into an idol where, where, where we quickly then start uh, finding our self-worth, our identity, our true joy, satisfaction to the point that if someone took that idol out of our lives, our lives would just fall apart. Now, what fuels this idolatry? If you stay in the 10th, in the Ten Commandments, it's the Tenth Commandment that fuels idolatry. The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. See, that command exposes what is most wrong with our hearts. It's those covetous wants and desires and, and cravings that turn our heart into idol factories. I mean, think about Paul for a second. Paul gives us so much uh, biographical stuff in his letters, or, or better yet, just he, he, his testimony is, is interwoven in the things that he writes to the church. And I so appreciate that about Paul. Uh, and, and in Philippians, he says in his former life, he says, I, as a Pharisee, I, I, I looked at the law as a Pharisee, and I said, I'm perfect. I'm blameless. But then you read in Romans 7 um, where Paul says, but there was one law that, that, that kind of just cracked at his heart, that cut his heart op open and, and smote all of his self-righteousness. And he said, it's that command, do not covet. And, and you ask, well, why this law? Why, why did this law uh, destroy Paul's understanding of himself to be perfect, it's because all, all the other laws are behavioral. He could look at them and say, okay, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't told a lie. I honor my parents uh, very well. Uh, but this command to not covet actually exposed his heart. It exposed his motives, his pride, all the ugly cravings and desires that were underneath his perfect behavior all those things that people couldn't see. What I find so incredibly interesting is that when the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew, uh, when they wanted to translate it into Greek, uh, this all happened before the time of Jesus, the, the word that they chose to translate the Hebrew word for covet, they used the Greek word epithemia. So that's what epithemia is. It's, it's, it's this coveting. In fact, James first introduces us to this word epithemia in James chapter 1, verse 14. And he uses the word epithemia here as a sexual metaphor to illustrate how epithemia works sin into our hearts. Uh, listen to what he writes. He says, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away, when they're lured by their own Apithemia, and they're enticed. And then after apithemia has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And this whole idea of, 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 of being lured uh, and, and enticed there is, is, is the word 
seduced. And, and, and what is it that causes the seduction? It's, it's the epithemia. It's those, those cravings of our hearts. It's those raging wants. And think about all the things right now that seduce our hearts, that inflame our hearts with this epithemia that cause sin to be conceived in our hearts before it's even birthed out of our lives. You see, the reason why James can talk about sin this way, sin as seduction, is because he's Jewish and he knows God and and that God is first and foremost a lover, a ravished lover with his people. And he knows, too, that the Ten Commandments are far more than just rules, but these are Israel's wedding vows that were given on their wedding day to the king of the universe. And so that first commandment, uh, when it says, you shall have no other gods before you, in light of this context, it's God saying, in light of this marriage, no other lovers in your lives. And when God says, and no, other, no graven images either, they, they, they take this because it's a marriage. There aren't even to be pictures of other lovers in this marriage. And so for them, sin is not just breaking the rules, it's being seduced by another lover. Sin is spiritual adultery. Because God is not just a rule giver. He's our husband. And this is why James, in in chapter one, he keeps going with this imagery, uh, this seduction that, that then leads to a conception. It gives birth. There's a child. That child is sin, but it doesn't even stop there. The child grows up and gives birth to a grandchild, and that grandchild is death. And this is the far-reaching effects of sin and how sin works in our hearts and works itself out in our lives. Do you know this about sin? Do we respect sin? Do we know that way before sin is birthed out of our lives, it's first conceived in our hearts? Back to my counseling over the years, um, I've talked to many people who've had affairs, and one of the common things I oftentimes hear are things like, well, she made me feel like such a man, or he made me so happy that I was actually worth something. And see, anything that seduces us and makes us feel like a man, that makes us feel like a woman, that becomes a source of our worth, our significance, our identity, our long-term satisfaction, James would say, this is just another lover in our lives. And these lovers, James would say, are, are very quickly gonna become a fatal attraction. So what is seducing your heart? I don't know. And you don't know what's seducing my heart, but I know, God knows. And questions I, I, I like to ask of my heart, like heart, what, what, what are you looking to to, to, to find your happiness? Uh, what are you looking to, Rod, to, to feel like you're a man? Uh, what, what are you looking to that, that makes uh, 
you feel like you're worth something or that, that life is worth living. I mean, it, it could be all kinds of things. It could be our career. It could be a relationship. It could be this need to get married. It could be the success of our kids. It could be your body. It could be your appearance. I mean, what is it right now that your heart is being seduced by? And see, this is why James in verse four, he, he says, and I don't know how he says it. I don't know if he says it with a tear in his eye. I don't know if he says it shouting like a prophet at them. But you adulterers. Because that's what all sin is. All sin is spiritual adultery. College football is fast approaching. Uh, this is the time of year when I will hear my wife Libby say to me quite often, so you're going to go spend some time with your other girlfriend right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I say back to her, I say, I love it when you talk to me that way. <laughs> because I do. Because I need to hear her say that. And, and of course, she's kind of joking. <laughs> uh, and, but, but why does she say this? She says it because we're married and marriage is exclusive. There's, there's, there's no both and in marriage. It's not Libby and someone else. It's not me and someone else. Marriage is with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. And see, that's why James keeps going in, in verse four. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world actually becomes an enemy of God. And this is not the first time James has introduced us to this idea of friendship. I mean, he talks about how Abraham was a friend of God, and that is just mind-boggling, that the creator of the universe invites us into this kind of relationship, a relationship as intimate as marriage and a relationship as intimate as friendship. We cannot be both a friend of God and a friend of the world. We can't. This relationship is not both and, it's either or. It's either God or the world. It's either the world or God. It's either him or it's other loves. And this is why Elijah called the whole nation of Israel to Mount Carmel. <laughs> he brought them to that place to ask them one Important question. Why, Israel, do you waver? In fact, the word there for waver is literally dance. And what was the dance? It was dancing between Yahweh and Baal. Yahweh and the world. Six days a week, Israel is in with Baal and the world. And one day a week, they're in with God. And Elijah says, uh-uh. That's not the kind of relationship, Israel, that you have been invited into. It's not both and. It's not both God and the world. It's not both God and Baal. 
Jesus picks up on this. He says, you cannot love both God and money. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and not the other. Jesus says, you cannot love both. Are you God's friend? David was. That's why his, his prayer that he prayed often, God, give me an undivided heart. Don't let my heart, God, be split between my love for you, my devotion to you, and my love and my passions for all this other stuff. God, give me an undivided heart. And I think that this brings us into the battle that rages in all of our hearts if we have any understanding of our hearts. And it's the battle that James is referring to in verse one when he says uh, these desires that battle within you. This battle's real. In fact, this battle is unique to Christians. And also you're like, wait, wait, where are you going with this, Rod? I, I thought that, that when I became a Christian that this battle is over, that Christ has won, that the old is gone, the new has come, and that I'm now living this completely victorious life in Jesus Christ. Uh, well, yes, in one sense, that is very true. We have left our old life, but our old life hasn't left us, which is why there's a battle within us. And so if you know this battle. You're not crazy. There's, there's nothing wrong with you. In fact, uh, Romans, in se- Romans 7 and 8, Paul is, is in graphic detail through his own life talking about this battle. And, and first of all, in Romans 7, Paul speaks of the sin that still dwells in him. And he literally uses the word, not just dwells, makes its home in me, but he uses the word, it lives. It's alive. Because sin is not something that's out there. It's not something that's outside of me. Sin originates in the human heart. I mean, Jesus in Mark 7 trumpets this as loud as anybody. And Paul speaking in the present tense as a Christ follower says, sin still lives in me. But then thank you that he doesn't end there, but we have Romans 8 because now Paul talks about something else that lives in him. And this is God's spirit, that the spirit of Christ right now literally is making his home in us. He's he's not way out there just watching us from a distance, but he right now, he's in us. He's in us. And this is the battle. This is the struggle. This is, this is the struggle unique only to a Christian. It's Romans 7, sin still lives in me. It's Romans 8, the spirit makes his home in me. And this Holy Spirit isn't just into a cleanup or even a home makeover. As C.S. Lewis says, he is making us into a castle fit for a king. And so when we become a Christian, we don't move from warfare to peace. We move from fighting a losing battle to fighting a winning battle. And it's a whole different war now. 
The struggle before you became a Christian is a war that you can't win, but the war that you fight after you become a Christian is a war that you cannot lose. And this is why all the New Testament writers uh, wanna give us a clear prognosis of our problem, and it's not just our behavior, or we'd be left just dealing with the outside of our lives. It's our hearts, its desires, its wants, the epithemia that creates the idols, the things that we constantly turn to if we're honest for our self-worth, identity, and satisfaction that we make our life become our worship. And this then becomes the big question. How do we heal? Because the good news of the gospel is not that God is going to morally reform us. The good news is that he's going to spiritually transform us beginning with giving us a new heart. And this starts from our end with us humbling ourselves and being willing to actually listen to what God says our problem is, knowing that his prognosis is gracious, that it's actually very loving for him to tell us that sin is not just a minor toothache, but it's a tumor that is living in us that will kill us. But this morning, you can remain in your pride and you can insist that you are fine and that your life is fine and that the world we live in is just fine and that everybody's fine and that everything will be fine. But from cover to cover, God through his word is graciously and lovingly telling us it is not fine. We are not fine. And if we would just humble ourselves and allow God to unmask us and peel away the onion of all the ways that we, uh, all the scaffolding in our life to, to try to just cover up the tumor within, that we would invite his spirit, his spirit to make his home in us. And, and, and what the spirit has done so often in my life is all of a sudden, I, I just feel the spirit. He's, he's putting his finger on something that I don't want to see, I don't want to look at. It, 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 it's way underneath other things. A lot of times those other things are good things, like ministry, work, exercise, my marriage. But he'll show it to me. And like Paul at the end of Romans 7, I get it. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who can save me from this body of death? Have you been there? When's the last time you wept and mourned over your sin because of the Holy Spirit's conviction in your life? This is why James says, God gives grace to the humble. He moves towards that. 
but he stiff arms. He opposes the proud. And the reason why we can go there, just think about God. Think about who he is, and, and, and God is so many things, so many amazing things. All of all, all the aspects of God are, are, are awesome, but God, first and foremost, is a lover. He is a ravished lover. And we'll never fathom on this side of heaven how much he loves you, me, us. Look at verse five. Listen to what James tells us here. Or do you think scripture says without reason that God jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? And that word jealousy is, is the kind of love that God has. He is a jealous God. It's 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 very similar word here, that God too has mega passions. He has mega desires. For what? Us. That he would live in us, make his home in us. That's how much God desires us, how much he loves us. And see, it's, it's this love that, that changes us, our our hearts really are what they are. You, 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 we can't change our hearts. They're like steel. You can't change steel by hammering it. You can only change steel by melting it. And this is how God's love changes us. He changes our hearts by melting them. On one of my most recent Israel trips, we spent the day in the Sinai, and I was teaching about God's marriage to Israel, how the Ten Commandments are Israel's wedding vows, and most importantly, how God is just ravished with love for his people. And then I just looked at the group that I was with, and I just said, he's ravished with you today. Do you know that? And this lady just, just broke, and she could not, she could not stop crying. And she cried the whole rest of my teaching and back to the bus. And this is a lady that has everything the world has to offer by a million. And later that night, as, as I was leaving dinner, she just grabbed me again and she said, is it true, is God really ravished with me? And I just looked at her and I smiled. I said, he made you. He knows you to the bottom of who you are. He, he loves you to the skies. You, we'll never know how much he loves us. And she just wept. See, this is what Paul, the apostle Paul experienced. This is what changed him. It was the love of God in, in Jesus Christ, which is why his prayer for those Christians in, in, in Ephesus, uh, listen to this prayer. It captures uh, what Paul has experienced. Now he's praying into them. He says, for this reason, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. And I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, and think about how unlimited his resources are, that he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. 
And then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. And your roots will grow down into God's love and they'll keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is his love for us. See, when we know this love, and when this love burns in our hearts, all the exhortations that James gives us in verses 7 to 10, in fact, these exhortations, when they are walked into and walked out, they will bring massive healing and transformation in a person's heart and life. But when we know the deep, deep love of God, these exhortations move from, I have to do this, to, I can't wait. And if you want to experience the grace of God, which will transform your heart, submit to God. Submit to him. Submit to his lordship. Submit to his word. Stop insisting that you are the Lord of your life. Surrender your life to him. Obey him. Submission is the number one way that we become like Jesus. Jesus submitted in every aspect of his life and his ministry to his father. Submit to God. Resist the devil. The devil is real, and from the very beginning, he is a liar. And what he loves to do is just dangle that forbidden fruit before us, inflaming the epithemia of our hearts, and then we start just playing. We dabble. We flirt. And before we know it, we're seduced. We need to stop feeding this tumor of epithemia, as the New Testament writers oftentimes say, either this is my summation, either we be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And here's the big one. Draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. In a moment, I reflected on that this week, my... My mind went right to Jesus' parable of the prodigal where he left his life of sin and he returned to the Father. And as he drew near to the Father, the Father ran to him. And this whole parable is a story of repentance. It's leaving the arms of false lovers and it's returning to the arms of God. Draw near to him. I know some of you are entrenched in things that are just like, I don't want to leave this. I don't want to let go of this. Uh, can I just tell you that whatever this or that is, it'll never love you. It'll, it'll never be ravished with you. It'll never die for you. And as James says in James 1, when we hitch our heart to these things that we're 
We're just gonna fade as they fade. But when we hitch our heart to God, the one who made us and knows us, at the end of this text, he will exalt us. We will be given the crown of life. And repentance, when it's done with the heart, it becomes really potent when it's followed by the act of consecration. Consecration is when we devote our whole self to God. It's everything that James is exhorting us to in verse eight when he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Wash your hearts, uh, you double-minded. Uh, this is the whole act of, of consecrating our, our hands, our heart. You can go further, our head, our feet. And especially when, when, when we do repentance and we do consecration with, with, with James's exhortation here, mourn, weep, feel miserable, change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. When we have this kind of pathos towards our sin and we consecrate ourselves to God, we offer him, God, here's my hands them. Here's my feet. Wash them. God, here's my head. Wash it. God, here's my heart. Wash me. All of me, God, for you. What would happen if the church would repent? So many people today are looking at the world and mourning over what it's become. God is looking at the church and mourning over what we have become. 